of Case Acquaint contains material that may be disturbing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 33. Quick update for you. Kevin Thomas Ford, the fellow charged with raping and killing Grace Hayden, has been extradited back to California. He's pleaded not guilty despite circumstantial evidence placing him in the area, in addition to his fingerprint, palm print, and his DNA matching the DNA from the rape kit. Kudos to law enforcement involved for keeping this evidence for all these years and for resubmitting everything as the data systems changed. Without these national databases with all states participating and submitting information on not only criminal cases, but criminals themselves, crimes like this would go unsolved and unpunished. We'll continue to keep you updated on Grace Hayden's case. So on with today's story. This is the story of the Kansas College Rapist, or... Some people call it the K-State Rapist, and the ongoing search for this attacker. First, I need to apologize for my voice today. Some kind of sinus thing going on, so I'm sorry if you can hear my breathing. I took something, but apparently it's not working. I appreciate your understanding. So first, a little background on these cases and this unique area of Kansas, uh, these attacks took place between the years of 2000 and 2015, according to police. Now, over this span of years, there have been over a dozen rapes of female college students. The crime scenes are spread out between two college towns. There is Manhattan, Kansas, which hosts Kansas State University, And then about 85 miles east, there's Lawrence, Kansas, which is larger than Manhattan and home to the University of Kansas. The schools have a well-known rivalry, and they're known to attract different types of students based on their intended career paths. Manhattan has more of a small-town conservative feel and has a comprehensive agriculture program, including one of the country's best veterinary schools, while Lawrence's University of Kansas has more branches to accommodate its large medical school and hospitals. Both schools have about the same amount of students who regularly attend their main campuses, but Lawrence has twice the population as Manhattan and offers more of a big city feel. I wouldn't want to forget to mention that located near Manhattan is Fort Riley, an army base, which has about 15,000 soldiers and civilian workers who live off base. So for the sake of ease, I'm going to refer to Kansas State University in Manhattan and Riley County as K-State and University of Kansas in Lawrence as KU. As for crime in these cities, well, they usually see the same type of crime most college towns see. 
while both are lower than the national median, they are well above the state median, and oddly enough, Manhattan has higher crime rates per capita in both violent crime and property crime. That's a surprise since Lawrence is closer to Kansas City. Some factors contributing to that might be the average age of the residents, which Manhattan's is lower, also more likely to be unmarried, and also the population is concentrated more densely into smaller residential areas. Manhattan is growing at a much faster pace than Lawrence as well. Still, for college towns, these two cities are generally considered safer than many other college cities in the United States. And undoubtedly, this crime data has been impacted by the series of crimes we're gonna talk about today. So with all that said, let's start from the beginning of what we know. And to be clear, the police have finally released a lot of information about this large set of cases. But we have to take into account that they've held back lots of information as well, which is entirely understandable at this point. For years, the public heard nothing about these cases because police hadn't connected them. In fact, we aren't sure when the rape kits from these connected cases were finally tested, but it wasn't until many years later. Still, from what police have now released, there are patterns and characteristics established early on that they would have been fools to not connect. Also, these apartment complexes knew about the rapes, but people continued to move in without knowing that a serial rapist had been attacking young women there. Even though there's still a backlog of rape kits, and even though it took police years to get their act together to try to find this rapist, what can we do about all that now? Now they're actively working these cases, and since they're working hard, they're trying to release what information they can, which they hope will help keep people safe while they search for an attacker. At this point, we're going to trust that they're going to do their best, and they need the public's help. If we've been able to identify the apartment complex or address, we're going to say so, and when we can't, we'll just provide the information the police have released. So let's get started on the timeline as we have it right now, and then we'll move into the other aspects of these crimes. On the timeline, we'll tell you if we have particular information about a certain attack. But just a heads up, most of the details about the perpetrator will be coming later. They provided the bare minimum about the victims, and rightly so. On Monday, October 1st of the year 2000, in Manhattan, at the 2200 block of College Avenue is what police have named this particular location, at or near the University Commons Apartments, a young woman, a K-State student, was attacked outside as she walked. But she fought back and her attacker ran off. This attack was a failure. They now believe that's why the attacker began to intrude on people's homes at night while they were sleeping and vulnerable. Almost one year after the first University Commons attack, there was another. This time it was August 11, 2001. Again at the University Commons apartments, but this was a second floor apartment. This young woman was attacked in her sleep and raped. Then the police heard nothing for six months. On March 29th of 2002, the rapist struck again, and also again at the same complex, the University Commons. 
and this, again, was a second-floor apartment. I wonder what the significance, if any, the floor of these apartments would be. Could it be that he was able to gain access by unlocked balcony doors? Police have not released that information. But again, a young woman was attacked in her sleep and raped. So all of these first three attacks that we know of occurred at the same apartment complex, the University Common Apartments, and the successful rapes occurred on the second floor. Now looking back, starting in 2000, the police are now saying that they think the perpetrator could have been around the age of 18, perhaps a college freshman at the time. And you'll notice that most of these attacks, in fact, almost every one coincided with a break in the school calendar. You're going to hear a lot about that in this episode. Also, almost all of them occurred between the early morning hours of 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. We're going to assume, hopefully this is correct, that, for example, Monday, October 2nd, was early morning Monday, not late night Monday. It was late night Sunday. If we don't tell you an age or a time, it's because we cannot verify that detail. But later, you're going to hear more about that too, so just stay with us. Nine months later, on New Year's Eve of 2002, there was another attack. This time at the 1400 block of Hartman Place. At the time, these were called the Chase Apartments. These apartments, they've always been well-known among students for having pretty spacious floor plans, but also very thin walls. And this has been a good place to live if you like to party or if you don't mind noise. As for the victims here, we don't know what floors they were on, whether they had roommates or anything like that. All we can say is that the rapist clearly felt comfortable targeting women in this large complex of buildings. So he struck on New Year's Eve 2002, then again on May 30th, 2003, on Watson Place, which is just a little street in this complex. Then, almost a full year later, another rape was reported, and again it was at Chase, again on Watson Place. And then again on June 14th of 2004. So this complex had three attacks between 2002 and 2004. Then, the attacker turned up in the city of Lawrence. So you might be asking yourself, why did the attacker move from the University Commons apartments and then start attacking people in the Chase apartments? And then, in July, he moves over to Lawrence and starts attacking people there police have speculated that he might have felt there was some heat on him and he needed to get to a new location to continue attacking people. Also, it is between 2000 and 2004, and he did finish his attacks, at that point anyway, in July during summer break. It's entirely possible that he simply moved. He waited one month and felt comfortable enough to perpetrate there on July 4th of 2004. That would be a Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. The location was later reported as the 3800 block of Clinton Parkway. The development is called the Lorimar Townhomes. A university student in her 20s was attacked as she was sleeping, and she was raped, as with the others. 
Then on December 29, 2004, again in Lawrence, and this time at the High Point Apartments, he raped two female university students. One was 19 years old, and one was 20. He waited for several months. Then on September 5th of 2005, he struck again, this time in Manhattan. We didn't see any apartments at the 1400 block of Hillcrest Drive. There are apartments further down the street, but not on that block. So he may have departed from his usual M.O. this time and attacked this young lady in a single-family home. June 13, 2006. A 21-year-old female university student who was sleeping was attacked and raped. This time it was at the 1900 block of Stewart Avenue in Lawrence. And these apartments are called the Chase Court Apartments. August 7th of 2007, the 900 block of Morrow Street in Manhattan. Now, back in August of 2007, there were only three or four small apartment buildings on that block. The rest of that street was more tree-lined residential, more like folk Victorians. But they probably housed students, too. If the perpetrator kept with his M.O., he would have been targeting one of those apartment buildings, but we don't know. March 22, 2008. Again, back at the Lorimar townhomes in Lawrence. And this time, the victim was a 20-year-old student. December 1, 2008. At approximately 2 a.m., another woman was attacked in her townhome, not far from the Lorimar townhomes. You might be wondering, what was going on with the news agencies there? What was going on with the cops? What were they telling students? Well, up until then, not much. It was well known among many students that there was a rapist out there, but it wasn't really publicized all that much. That's because that's bad publicity for the universities, it's bad for the apartment complexes, and it's also bad for the police departments. But this last attack... The report was not suppressed before the media picked it up. Lawrence Police Department was out there the next day with over a dozen officers searching grassy areas along the streets near the townhome of that victim from the morning of December 1, 2008. At that point, Lawrence PD decided to issue a warning about the rapes that had happened in Lawrence that they felt like they could connect in that city. They made an announcement just before spring break of 2009 Lawrence named their rapist the Break Rapist. They were vague about whether or not the Break Rapist could be related to the rapist attacking sleeping women in Manhattan. At the time, Lawrence authorities said they were looking for a white man, 5'9 to 6 feet tall. He had a slim build and covered his face with something. They wouldn't say what. They said he might be aged between 25 and 40. They characterized these sexual attacks as lasting for some time, and they also said the perpetrator was armed. Sometimes he used a gun to intimidate his victims. They did not say specifically how each home was entered, but they did note that at least once, a door was left unlocked. The Riley County Police Department, which is responsible for the Manhattan rape investigations, 
had been looking for someone whose description was slightly different, and they claimed they hadn't had an attack since 2007. Don't forget, Manhattan had been experiencing these rapes since the year 2000, and the police there had worked up sort of their own description. Theirs remained at the time a white man in his late 20s, about 5 foot 10, and weighing between 200 and 220 pounds. So some slight differences. But then, after issuing all these warnings, after the press got a hold of it, they reported that authorities had connected many of the rapes to each other and were attributable to this particular perpetrator. And then all of a sudden, the rapes stopped. That was it. That's not to say women were getting raped, but according to authorities, none that fit this person's profile. And could it be they had DNA evidence to connect him as well? That's not something they have said, so we can't say. We do know that Kansas has a pretty serious backlog of rape kits, as do many, many other states. Women had already been buying pepper spray to keep for years, at least in Manhattan. But everything kind of died down a bit, since after a year or two, they didn't see any additional attacks. In the meantime, the Kansas Attorney General told the Riley County Police Department and the Lawrence Police Department to start working together to solve these cases because that office felt they were all connected. So between 2009 and 2015, there's nothing new to report. But then, on July 27th of 2015, there was an initial report of an early morning break-in during which an unknown male came into an apartment. It happened at the Chase Apartments, one of the original locations of multiple attacks back in Manhattan. At first, the Riley County Police Department stopped short of calling it another attack by the rapist. They just said they had officers investigating it. But it was in fact an attempt, and it was the Kansas College Rapist. What they didn't mention was that burglaries and break-ins were, by 2015, not uncommon at the Chase Apartments, where lots of drug dealers lived and thrived. In our research for this show, one of our team members did find something interesting, though, at both the University Common Apartments and the Chase Apartments reviews. People mentioned maintenance men letting themselves into apartments when doors were locked and residents were there. At Chase back in 2008, someone claiming to be a maintenance man let himself in at 1.30 in the morning, according to one account. Since 2015, police have been busy. They've brought in the KBI, which is the Kansas Bureau of Investigations, the U.S. Marshals, and the FBI. You'll be hearing in a few minutes what all they've been helping out with, although I'm sure you're already thinking about what that might be. They also state they're going to continue to seek help. I think there's absolutely an opportunity there. But they are working these cases. They have a website dedicated to keeping the case information updated. Also, they have clearly given him a moniker by creating the website. It's called KansasCollegeRapist.com and they have now been able to connect the cases in the two cities. On July 27, 2017, they released more and better information in an attempt to generate leads. 
and also to that end, they said, they had reviewed each case individually again with a fresh and comprehensive perspective, knowing this information was about one single person who was responsible for all of these attacks. They said that first case at University Commons Apartments back in 2000, someone provided a description of a white man who was seen shortly before that attack. They don't say if that someone was a witness or the victim, but they felt this description at the time might have been the best one provided, and so they wanted to remind the public what he may have looked like back in the year 2000. 5 foot 10 to 6 foot, with a medium athletic build and medium length sandy blonde hair. The description apparently was of someone whose face was not covered, so there's a composite they released as well. They said this composite was originally distributed in the area of the first attack at the time, but unfortunately, no additional leads have been generated because of it. If this is a reasonable composite of the rapist from back in 2000, obviously, he would look different today. The descriptions of him have changed over the years, and not for the better, I'm afraid. I mentioned the KansasCollegeRapist.com site, and there is a press release on there with much of the information we've already given you. But there's a part of that press release we would like you to hear today because we feel it's very important to get this particular message out. They talk about the connections between all the rapes from 2000 to 2015, and that they think it's the same guy. Lots of characteristics that have remained, even though he's aged. It would be an understatement to say they're suspicious there are many unreported attacks. So I'm just going to read part of this press release to you. Hopefully it won't take up more than a minute or two. It says, We are announcing this connection between the 2015 case and the previous cases for three reasons. First, given the nearly seven-year gap between December of 2008 and July of 2015, we would like to know if there have been similar unreported incidents during that time span. We cannot say enough about the courageous women who have already stepped forward to provide vital information about their assailant. If anyone feels they had an encounter with an individual matching this description, please know that we want to hear from you. We want to provide help for you. Your information, even if it is several years old, may help bring justice to all the victims. Second, we're making this announcement to solicit information from the other individuals who might be able to assist in identifying the assailant. To that end, we are supplying more details than previously released regarding the locations of these incidents. We're hoping that those who were living in the area at the time they happened may recall something that could be useful in our investigation. While we're currently working on a number of leads that we are not in a position to discuss in order to not jeopardize the investigation, Major cases are frequently solved with information provided by citizens. We need your help to hasten the assailant's identification and prevent the assault of further victims. Finally, we're making this announcement to increase safety awareness among the students of Kansas State University and University of Kansas. We've provided in this release information about the assailant's description, demeanor, and possible pre-assault actions. And we would like students, as well as the general public, to be mindful of this and be watchful for anything or anyone that might seem out of place. Do not hesitate to alert the police in such instances. From our perspective, 
if in any circumstance you wonder whether or not you should call the police, the answer is yes. End of quoted material. After that press release, they received over two dozen leads to follow up on. What were some of the similarities and differences of his chosen targets? Well, we know the locations were mostly apartments followed by duplexes or townhomes, and even one or two single-family homes. The means by which he gained access to the homes are still somewhat of a puzzle to authorities. Most of the victims were adamant that their doors were locked, but others may not have been sure or they knew that one or two doors weren't locked. Whether or not a door or window was locked, there are still no signs of forced entry. This indicates that the attacker has a means by which he can unlock these doors if necessary. There are plenty of ways of doing this. Apartment complexes have master keys. They often furnish their staff with these keys to make it easier to enter the apartment units. Sometimes they'll provide these keys to specialty vendors like HVAC contractors. And with the management of these complexes operating at such a high turnover rate, it would not be a surprise if they lost track of one or more of these keys. There are also certain types of keys that are available to the public, called bump keys. These keys will open any lock of that particular type. But the thing about bump keys is that, first of all, you have to learn how to use a bump key. And then second of all, using it can be pretty noisy. So it might not be the preferred method if you're looking to enter an otherwise quiet household. There are ways to make it difficult or impossible to use a bump key on certain locks, and there are also locks you can buy which are bump resistant. Whatever method the Kansas College rapist employed, he was able to gain access to most likely through doors that were both locked and unlocked. In all but two of the attacks, the victim was by herself. They believed that a certain level of targeting of the individual as well as the location was done. So, he had the means and the opportunity to surveil both the victim and the location. The times of the initial attacks ranged from between about 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. That was the time he entered the units, but I think it can be assumed that since he early on ritualized his behavior, he was engaging in pre-attack preparations much earlier than 2 a.m. or whenever he entered those homes. He could have been sitting out there all day prior to the attack, just watching the comings and goings of the victim and her roommates. There are reports that these attacks may have lasted for several hours. What about the days of the week? He didn't attack on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, and he never attacked on a Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Some people say he must have had a job that required him to work Sunday mornings and Thursday mornings. Well, that could be, or it could have something to do with their schedules of people in his own residence. It's really hard to tell what that might mean. But one thing that might factor in is the school calendar. All but one of the attacks occurred during a break in the school calendar. Many students leave town or they party on those days. This provides opportunities for the attacker to find his victims home alone or at least with a limited number of people around. There's also been speculation that, for at least some period of time, the attacker was himself a student. Either way, he's familiar with the school calendar. He attacks more often during fall semester, when there are lots of new students and when people may not know their roommates very well yet, and when there's a much better chance friends won't be dropping by at all hours. 
the rest of the assaults were committed mostly during summer break when there were fewer people around at all. He has a very good understanding of how these communities and his victims' households at the time changed during breaks in the school calendar. I think this is one of the most important details about this series of crimes, and it's an indicator that this person is a local, not just someone who appeared in the area when he was 18. By the time he started this particular type of attack, he knew how to plan the dates of the attacks and which households to target. It could be he even was able to enter homes while they were unoccupied so he could ensure that he would later have entry like the Golden State Killer frequently did. As you heard a few minutes ago, the local agencies have reached out to other agencies for assistance. The result was what they are calling their offender profile. This is the offender the authorities are looking for as of December of 2017. He's still a white male. They believe that in December of 2017, he was at least 35 years of age. They're still putting his height at a between 5 foot 9 and 6 foot variance. The description of his build has also varied over the years, of course, but now they're saying they feel he has what they call a prominent stomach. He has a big belly. Also, his overall build is now described as thick, but he has muscle tone in his thighs. They say there is no updated description of his face, since he always has it covered somehow. In terms of behavior, they're saying he's highly organized. After that first experience, no way of knowing if there were other attempts, but at least at some point after that, he became less impulsive and more calculated. He must have realized it's easier to subdue a sleeping person rather than a person on alert as she's walking down the street. This greatly reduced his risk of failure, of physical harm to himself, and of course, of being caught. He's described as someone who would be able to remain calm in emotionally charged situations and may seem emotionally detached or unexcitable. When he's not in control of a situation, he is a rule follower. He's unsatisfied in his romantic life, and they say he might be employed in the type of work that doesn't require much of what they call interpersonal adeptness, since it might exacerbate his feelings of inadequacy. Also, what about the fact that he shuttled between these two cities? I feel like he must have grown up in the area and has lived and or worked extensively around these different locations he's targeted, and he frequents them regularly. He must have access to reliable transportation, and he must be someone who fits in and doesn't draw suspicion when he's skulking around. Some of the professions he may be in have been theorized as a skilled technician like building maintenance, plumbing, HVAC, roofing, or security, even police work, or some military such as the National Guard maybe, or even the Army. These apartment complexes, while they're marketed to students mostly, they're also occupied by young military folks. What do you think this guy does for a living? Do you think he was a student at K-State when he began? If so, what do you think his field of study would have been? Most of the time, he obtained and maintained control over his victims by brandishing a gun, but at all times, he used some sort of weapon. So that's pretty much everything the police would have to say about this person. Some people have speculated that 
that they don't have a DNA profile on him. I would find that to be almost impossible. There's almost zero chance these rape kits have not been tested, unless they accidentally lost them. And even if the attacker tries to take measures to remove his DNA from the scene, it's becoming all but impossible to do so. I believe that the offender is trying to balance his drive to attack with his desire to stay out of jail, and that's why the attacks have all but stopped. At least they're not being reported. Did he get involved in a relationship that delayed his behavior for some reason? Be it that it reduced the opportunity or the drive to offend? Is his drive to offend being reduced due to other factors such as age? I don't think anyone can be sure, but in August of 2017, Lawrence Police received a report of a stocky white man between 5'8 and 5'9 standing outside a woman's bedroom with his shorts down around his ankles and masturbating while he looked in this woman's room. Her roommate heard some rustling in the bushes and looked out another window, saw him, and then she called the police. I wonder if that masturbator left any DNA outside the window. Whether or not he offends again, these cases are almost assuredly going to be resolved eventually. They still have tools which they could utilize, like the ancestry type registries, DNA phenotyping, which over time is only going to get more precise. If you look at Parabon's snapshot, they're eerily similar to actual photos of people they've profiled. There's also a high probability that there are victims out there who have not yet come forward. The authorities seem to be accepting this as a foregone conclusion. One of the reasons why is actually due to the ongoing problems the universities are having with their frat houses and student-athletes when they're accused of rape. They still don't seem to be able to figure out how to address this problem of off-campus rapes of their students. This is definitely something that impacts reporting, because when a rape is reported, people's lives change. What the universities and also authorities don't seem to want to admit is that before the report happened, someone's life had already changed. Rape, harassment, assault, and all the other criminal activities perpetrated by and against students on and off campus are partly the responsibility of the university, and they do show that they understand this relationship when they actively move to protect those students who are accused of rape. You would think that an institution which projects an image of a moral high ground and source for all wisdom, knowledge, and thinking should be able to figure out how to act. They like to tell everybody else how to think and act, but they can't seem to get their own actions streamlined enough to manage these issues. It doesn't instill confidence in the institutions, that's for sure. We are impressed with how the police and the Attorney General have attempted to turn this around since 2009. You know, it did take the Attorney General stepping in to tell Riley County Police and Lawrence Police that they should probably start working together on this. But once they started acting, they've gone to great lengths to try to get more information from victims and to encourage those who have not to come forward. No agency is perfect, and yes, they did go for years not acting on these cases, but they're doing so now. Let's hope they continue to do so. Also in 2013, Kansas lawmakers acted by passing House Bill 2252, which eliminated a statute of limitations on rape. Many states still have a statute of limitation, which really needs to change. 
You have a lot of people who were sexually abused as children, for example, who will tell you they couldn't pursue charges against their perpetrator, sometimes a parent, because by the time they turned 18 or were able to go to police, the statute of limitation time had passed. It had been too long. If you want to know what your state's laws are, we'll include a link for you in the notes. We also want to make sure we mentioned that at least one victim has done something extraordinary. She actually came forward to the public about her attack and spoke at a university, hoping to help others. She told the audience how she was awoken by a man with a gun. She said, He beat me, tied me up, and raped me. He terrorized me for almost eight hours. I think sometimes when we hear about rape occurrence, we fail to understand the brutality involved. And while we don't need to know all the details, think about this. This person has a method he employs. If he beat, tied up, raped, and terrorized one young, sleeping university sophomore for eight hours, it's more likely than not that this is what he does to everybody he can. Just because these women didn't lose their lives doesn't mean this isn't a serious crime. It's very serious, and this individual is disturbed and extremely dangerous. We wanted to briefly review some of the warnings police came out with. They have a poster. You can find it on that website. Some of the things they want you to do is be aware of your surroundings, lock your doors and windows, things like that. Many women who have lived alone have developed their own strategies over the years. You kind of have to. Nowadays, they have motion-sensing LED lights, very bright, that you can place at a windowsill or near your bedroom door. They also have inexpensive alarm devices for doors and windows. Those are installed on the inside of the door or window. That's something you can do. Another thing that lots of people do now is get a wedge doorstop and place it against the door. That will delay entry into a room. Students don't always have the luxury of being able to have pets. But alert dogs usually will let out a different type of growl or bark if they sense danger. Some people suggest keeping a weapon or pepper spray near your bedside. That is a personal choice. Others say if you don't have constant control over this weapon, it can be used on you, so be careful. With social media and telling people your business, I think we all know we should exercise common sense and try very hard not to let people know when our roommates are going to be gone or when we plan on being out of town ourselves, things like that. If you want to see more along the lines of increasing safety, check out the show notes. We'll provide some links. And finally, if you have information about these crimes to report, we'll have all that in the show notes too. But just real quick, you can call their Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or 785-539-7777. There is a $10,000 reward being offered for his arrest and prosecution. If you've been a victim of rape, sexual assault, or abuse, there is help out there. A good resource is the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. As always, if we see any developments on these cases, 
and we do expect to see some, we will update you all. Thank you for your patience with my voice today, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.